Hey, are you ready to grow your business? You have checked out the number one resource for business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and managers. And we're going to teach you how to grow and scale your business with real actionable steps. There's no fluff in this podcast. It's just good advice. Check out this episode. If you're a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, leave us a five-star review. Today's episode is with Catherine Spinney. She's a leadership expert. She helps organizations attract, develop, and retain high-quality staff. Stay tuned. Here comes your good advice. Hey, thanks for checking out another episode of the Blake Benz podcast. I am sitting down with a friend of mine, Catherine Spinney, who she helps organizations attract, develop, and retain their high quality talent. You you can't grow a business. You can't scale a business. You can't really build something meaningful without people around you who believe in the vision. And Catherine is so good at making that happen. Catherine, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you, Blake. And I love the way that you summarize that. And it it is something that is true across sectors, but it's been particularly challenging where I work in the nonprofit sector because we are so called to always think of clients first. So in the most sincere sense of wanting to do the best for our clients, most of our energy goes towards them. But the flip side of that is it's often at the expense of the staff. And so it's shifting that mindset a little bit that we are serving our clients by focusing on our staff, but it does require a shift. And Catherine, if if I may, if we can just go ahead and dive, right? I want to know about you, but I'm already, now my my wheels are already turning on this subject of of leadership. So I already want to dive in and kind of get your perspective if that's okay. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> we can't see each yeah. other. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you were waiting. Is, is there more to that question or <laughs> no? <laughs> That's the joy of conference calls, right? Uh, so, Absolutely. So something I've noticed, because I've worked with nonprofits too, something I've noticed in the nonprofit space is, especially when it comes to, uh, and, and mistreatment's probably too strong of a word. I, I don't want to really imply that mm-hmm. like there's anything malicious happening, but uh, when a when an employee gets mistreated, sometimes it feels like there's this thought around, well, it's a nonprofit. Well, I'm supposed to mm-hmm. be um, I'm supposed to be serving at my expense, so to speak, where I'm like this mm-hmm. mourner for a cause, and mm-hmm. it feels like it really builds quite a bit of burnout. Where after a few years, it's like, okay, now I'm going to go get now I'm going to get a different job, a job that's out of the nonprofit mm-hmm. space, because people kind of get they get exhausted a bit. Have you seen something similar in some of the nonprofits you've worked with? Do you have any advice there? I see it all the time. And I have worked in big ones and small ones and ones in different states and different areas. And a common thread, though it's certainly not true in the entire sector, is exactly what you stated, that the nonprofit field tends to be filled with people who are mission driven. They have a call to serve the particular community they're serving. And that's a beautiful thing. But some often what happens is the nonprofits use that 
sometimes I don't think intentionally, but but sometimes I think it is there is a great awareness of this person is is doing something for the greater good, and therefore it is okay for me to pay them less or work them more. And I don't at all want to diminish the challenges that come with funding a nonprofit and mm. grants, and it's the constant cycle of getting money. So there is an absolute practicality to having a limited budget. Mm. Having said that, like in everything we do, we believe the stories we tell ourselves. And I think in the nonprofit community, we're doing a disservice because the stories we tell ourselves are that there's just no money and we just can't pay more and people don't join this field to make money and I'm so busy so that means I care and I don't have any time to take lunch and all of these things that have grown to be almost a badge of honor mm. and it's the opposite effect because it is burning out and Gallup did this amazing study and it was like 50% of folks are either burnt out or right on the edge of that. And the other data point I share all the time is that exactly what you mentioned at a certain point, lots of people say, you know, I need a break let me try out the private sector for a while. And when that happens, only half of them ever come back. So we do this really great job of drawing in talent, but we almost do everything we can to push them away. And so the stories we need to tell ourselves have to change from there's nothing to be done to there needs to be something done because our staff need to be paid more and treated better and developed and not always the, the cliche that comes around all the time that you're building the plane while you're flying it. Well, that's <laughs> not a great model. <laughs> and that's not something we should just accept and, and keep doing. So, um, man, I have so many thoughts on what you just said. I love everything you're saying. You're so spot on. It, it almost feels like, let, let's just pick up on that last comment you just made on building the plane as it's being flied. I actually heard a nonprofit director mm -hmm. once say, he said, you know, he used that expression and he said, and we want to have just enough gas just to, just to be able to land without crashing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. huh, you know, man, that's not a very uh, risk averse strategy there. And I mm -hmm. actually, actually remember even talking with that business and we, I mentioned, you know, what's your strategy? And he said, um, he goes, Ooh, well, eesh, we don't really like the word strategy. That, that feels kind of transactional. <laughs> it feels kind of business. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. a nonprofit. We're serving people. We really want to hone in on that. And I, I remember thinking like, okay, well, what, what are we, what words are we allowed to use here? Because we need to figure right. out how to help you make money. And that mm -hmm. actually, that nonprofit actually went out of business a year later. And mm -hmm. I, and it was so sad yeah. because their, their impact was so meaningful. It was so, it was so necessary, but it feels like mm -hmm. there's this, uh, this resistance or maybe it's just, it's, um, I don't know the word for it. it. It's just, when we talk about running a nonprofit as a business in the sense of understanding that your nonprofit is a filing status, but there are some mechanics that you need to put in place to really make this thing sustainable it's almost like mm -hmm. I've noticed a handful of directors who are um, just really wary of, they almost feel like they're losing their soul, so to speak, of why they got into the nonprofit space mm -hmm. or why their organization mm -hmm. exists. You know, what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, 
I think that the, I do believe it comes from a good place, which is I am choosing this path because of my passion and because of my care and because I want to make the world a better place and I want to be the change and all of these things we hear in the nonprofit world. So I do want to start there, that it does come from a good place. And that there is this feeling of um, that should be done in a sacrificial way or thinking about money sort of dirties the cause of what I'm trying to do. Right. right? Yeah. And and I yeah. And I think when we talk about that mindset shift, it really even though it comes from a good place. I think it starts to get irresponsible because you cannot run a nonprofit unless you're self-funded and God bless you if that's your situation. But for most nonprofits, they need funding from outside sources and you cannot get that funding if you don't know how to do it and you don't have the willingness to do it. And so I, I literally yesterday was meeting with an executive director that I'm working with who has an MBA and he was brought into the organization because they were having financial difficulty and they recognized we're not, this is not our strength, right? So that requires a level of humility and awareness to say what we're doing is great and we're great on the mission side and the program side and we know what we're doing there. We clearly don't know what we're doing on the finance side. Mm -hmm. So they brought in an MBA who came in and brought all his MBA training with him and really turn the organization right. around. And we, we had this beautiful conversation. I wish you could have been a part of it where we said, you know, the, the principles in these two sectors of private nonprofit have so much to offer one another. And in many ways, we've completely separated them. Like mm -hmm. that's private sector thinking, or that's the nonprofit world when there's really great value in both. And so what I say to people, many of whom approach me and tell me they want to start their own nonprofit. And I do have that conversation with them that because the, where almost everybody goes immediately is to the passion. And that's beautiful because it's needed. And I, and I love to listen to their stories about where their passion is. And, and then, <laughs> and then I ask something about what do you know about running a business and raising money and creating a budget? And what are you going to do to create that piece of it? So it is a lot less glamorous and there are uh, some people who love both, but it tends to be, folks who are a little bit one or the other, which shows up a lot in the coaching world too. I love to coach. I want to help people. I don't know anything and I'm not so interested in the business side of it. And so if, if you know that to be true, that's powerful awareness. Now, what are you going to do about it? Because your passion, I, I don't mean to sound negative, but your passion in most cases can only get you so far if you don't have the other pieces in place. Well, and I think, I think that insight is so true beyond even the nonprofit space. I mean, anything that's mm -hmm. worth building has to have, you know, an actual, it has to have legs, right? And I, I think um, mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like in the nonprofit space that there, actually, this is, I even see this in the business space too, but there is there is a working plan just enough to finish the fiscal year. <laughs> but when we talk about mm -hmm. when we mm -hmm. talk about next year or like or even even beyond fiscal planning, let's just talk about sustainability 
it's okay, what mm-hmm. you've designed here, your work is so meaningful, but I don't know how mm-hmm. sustainable this is. And it's like, it's like there was one nonprofit that I was working with where the uh, executive director, and I, she was needing to hire a role that was like some kind of health professional licensure, uh, a person who's been licensed in some kind of health field. And she was like, hey, the average starting pay here is $80,000. How can you help me find someone who will work here for 20000 And I was like, Ugh, well, I, it sounds yeah. like you need to raise another sixty grand because, mm-hmm. and, but that's kind of, in some cases, that's the nonprofit mindset is it's, it's a okay. shoestring, how do I put this together with duct tape mm-hmm. enough rather than, okay, mm-hmm. how do I really dig down and build the foundation so that my good work can be done, you know, more than just this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and a lot of the work I do, as you mentioned in the introduction, is around staffing and hiring and supporting and retaining high quality staff. And the pushback I get constantly is, we don't have the time, we don't have the money. And often I will sit down with a pen or a calculator and say really break it down financially, which is how much time is going into how many times per year you're hiring because your turnover is so high. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and when you really break it down from the like reviewing the job description to posting to interviewing to hire, I mean, it's hours and hours and hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And it's often the executive team who's doing it. So if you then break down their salary per hour and calculate how much they're spending. It's often eye-opening, which is the point of, wow, and then I'm doing this 12 times a year or whatever their turnover rate is. And so I say to them, if you then just boost up the salary a little bit and bring in higher quality people who don't need as much support, and so your turnover goes down, and then to see what that looks like, And most of them can see that where the resistance is, is that we are constantly putting out fires. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if my budget's going to make it through the quarter, let alone this is going to benefit me in a year. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, again, it goes back to that. It's a practical concern, but it's a practical concern that also comes out of not having the resources and the capacity to fulfill the mission you're saying you want to fulfill. And one more thing I wanted to add to that, which I say to my frontline folks all the time, is we need to approach this on two tiers. And one is more in our control, one is a lot slower, but we have to look at it as what do we have control over in our corner of the world, in our particular organization, what changes can we make here to operate more efficiently while we're having the bigger systemic conversation? Because boards and funders particularly need to need to be on board with a budget that comes across their desk that says, I need to pay this person $80,000, not $20,000. And so that is a a much slower (laughs) adjustment because it's on a systemic level, but we can't ignore it either. And, you know, I, I do a lot of work with individual organizations and I tell them how much they have to invest 
in their staff. And then I came across a data point that says only 1% of grants provide money for professional development. So that's a real disconnect that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I empathize with directors out there who, because in many cases, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 I see a director who comes on board who the pressure is insane. It, it's, it's almost like mm-hmm. what I see sometimes, because I used to be a high school teacher, it's almost what I see sometimes mm-hmm. when a, a new superintendent... Oh, <laughs> teacher's <are> mad. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we chose the right next career then, I guess, because we're both doing it. But, yes. <laughs> um, but so, you know, a superintendent comes in to flip a school district and there's really like this timer. You know, there's a lot of um, pressure mm-hmm. on you know, how are they going to do this? And I see this similarly with executive directors. So they come into a nonprofit that has not been financially sustainable and the board, Mm -hmm. the board is almost um, really kind of tapping their toes and thinking, okay, you know, what are you going to do here? And actually Mm -hmm. speaking about like putting out fires, it almost feels like that relationship between the executive director and the board is really where there can be quite a bit of a, a roadblock where I've seen board members mm-hmm. who, okay, you came in wanting to do this strategy because maybe it is an executive director who thinks, okay, yeah, we do need to pay 80 grand or, or even a little lower, maybe 70 mm-hmm. grand. And you have the right. board who says, no, you don't need to do that. You need to do it this way. Mm-hmm. I have seen some executive mm-hmm. directors who have been held, almost held prisoner in terms of their strategy sure. by their board or on the flip side, a board that's just totally detached you know, they, aren't, they don't come mm-hmm. to board meetings, they're not there, they're not around, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I don't know what it is in your experience or what you see, but I, I know that's, I, I empathize with directors in that way, mm-hmm. especially the ones who are really trying to bring about organizational change, but just can't seem to build momentum. Well, and, and it's funny, I work with an executive director right now, and part of the frustration there is my board is so disengaged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and anything that I need support or I need ideas or I need resources, like they're sort of, in, in this case, they are at the meetings, but really in body only. And I, I joked not to discredit the challenge they were going through, but I said, you know, it seems to be this choice of extremes. You get these boards that are really disengaged or on the other end of the spectrum, you get <laughs> boards who micromanage everything, yeah, right? And right. it's really, and that's not very good either. Uh, and nobody wants that. And, and it is hard to find that happy medium. But right. I, I think your point where, Again, it doesn't all, people are not maniacally joining boards to make life difficult. (laughs) And so it's, it's not their, their goal, but, but they have a level of accountability because they have chosen to be on this board. And so the board, I, I think in a lot of cases, boards get put together because you need a board in order to run a nonprofit. And the implications of that are enormous, right? It's, it's really going to guide where your nonprofit goes. And so those decisions of what are the expectations of your board members? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of boards where there's not many expectations. <laughs> and so when you get a disengaged board, again, there is a level of accountability on the on the part of the board member. But if you're like most other people, if you do something and there's no expectation involved around it, you tend to then not create your own expectations, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
really being intentional about we need folks who are going to raise money or we need strategic folks or we need folks who can connect us to people, you know, in on the policy level or whatever it is you're trying to do as an organization. But those decisions, along with who you're choosing as staff, are going to affect the way your organization runs. Mm, yeah. Man, I, I'm I'm pinging with you really on on each of these points you're making, and I can tell we we mm-hmm. see things very similarly. Uh, let Let's mm-hmm. go a little bit of a different direction. I I want to know more about sure. you. You mentioned you were a teacher. I'm actually I have your bio mm-hmm. up here, and I am just you are quite the entrepreneur, is all I can think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at this. I mean, you know, first paying job in fifth grade. Uh, you were a pizza delivery driver. You've been a nonprofit exec. And also just some of these locations. Uh, you've you've mm-hmm. lived in South Korea. Man, I don't even know where to start. I mean, let's, let's <laughs> tell me a little bit about your story. You know, how, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I, I was, I think a lot of it has to do with being raised by parents who, instilled that a lot of what we wanted to do needed to come from us, that they always provided what we needed, but the things that we wanted, uh, it was always a, you know, you can have that thing if you raise the money to go get that thing. And even before my paper route, I remember in elementary school and how it began, I will never know, but there was a little business on my way home from school And somehow we made this arrangement that I would buy her a cup of coffee on my way home from school and she let me keep the change. And I did that every single day on my way home from school. And it was probably, I don't remember, 35 cents or or whatever it was. And, uh, and, and, but I, yeah, and then I did it. And then we had this little local clothing store where Friday nights I would go and vacuum for $2 a night. So child labor labor laws aside, <laughs> I think it was always this mentality of like, sure, you can go make it happen, but you need to go make it happen. And so from the paper route to babysitting to jobs in high school, as you mentioned, I delivered pizzas. I was at the supermarket. I worked all through college. I went to Korea as sort of an adventure, but I was also teaching English over there. And even while I was teaching English, I had private students on the side. Sorry, government, but I did. And then, (laughs) you know, when I was in grad, (laughs) when I was in grad school, I was tutoring every chance I got. So it's a a little bit out of a practical sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. if we bring it back to the nonprofit world, I was a classroom teacher for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I was in the nonprofit world for a long time. And I lived in Washington, D.C. for seven years in the nonprofit world. So I forever had second jobs. And it was a little bit of survival. uh, But it's also a little bit of I have a lot of interest. And one of the side jobs I have, I host a trivia night because I love trivia. And right. it I, also I, gives me... Hang on. Yeah. I, I need to like move to Baltimore because you sound like... <laughs> You sound really cool and you sound really fun. Like it sounds like you lived in the Thank same town, there'd be no shortage of fun things to do. I mean, this just sounds great. So so you you run a trivia night. Now is it themed or is it mm-hmm. just is it 
you know, what is it? It's not themed. And I, I should clarify, I host it. So okay. someone else, <laughs> the company is in charge of, of crafting it. And my job is to show up and, and host the evening. I don't know. I'm, I'm already envisioning you as like an MC and like, you know, <laughs> the cue cards with like the trivia questions or something. <laughs> pretty much. It's pretty much like that. But I, but I think what I learned early on through all of these jobs and all of these experiences is uh, there's a lot of things I enjoy and there's a lot of things I want to do. Mm. And my, my own coach and I talk about this all the time, which we, we make this metaphor of a quilt where we want to build this quilt of our lives and all the different things that involved. And when you're an entrepreneur, you hear a lot about being like obsessed with your business and you eat, sleep, breathe, dream your business. And I, in many cases, that's true for me. But even if you look at my business, even my business is a quilt, right? So I started it to do coaching, but now I'm doing training and now I'm doing team retreats. And now I do assessment work for programs and I work with interns and volunteers. So even within my own business, it was that acknowledgement of like, there's lots of things I want to do while also staying within my vision of supporting nonprofit communities in their staff. So I, I, my philosophy for me, and it's not true for everybody, but I, I do believe everybody has the ability, if they so choose, to look at their life and create the life that they want. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, once we're in the rhythm of our lives, I think we forget that. I think we forget that we are making choices. And this is not at all to imply that everybody has equally easy choices, right? Right. That people have financial situations and health situations and family situations. And I do do not mean to say everybody starts from the same place because we know that is not true. I say that to say we are only stuck when we tell ourselves we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And so when people come up to me and say, oh, your, your life is so cool, or I want to start my own business, or I wish I could do this, I, I gauge if they're saying that really, or they're mm-hmm. saying it as something to say. Right. But if they're saying it really, then I say, awesome, here's how I did it. Um, but here's the, the flip side of how I did it. And part, part of my story When I moved to Baltimore, I mentioned I had been in D.C. for seven years. I had uh, enjoyed my time there, but probably after five or so years, I was probably ready to go. And I was dragging my feet a little bit. Oh, I want to go. Where do I want to go? I don't know what I want to do. And the universe has a way of responding. And I think the universe got tired of hearing me say, you know, I'm kind of over this job. I'm over this apartment. I'm over the city. And one day out of absolutely nowhere, I lost my job. And three days later, I got a notice from my landlord that they were tearing down my apartment. (laughs) And so I said, okay, universe, I guess. (laughs) Since I was dragging my feet, you certainly pushed me. And I went through this wonderful time of now, what do I do? Do I stay? Do I go? I'm from Boston. Do I go back home? Do I go overseas? 
And people laugh when I say this because they have a particular perception of Baltimore, but I've always loved Baltimore and all roads led here. And I picked up and six months later, I was in Baltimore. And the morning after I moved here, I was sitting on my couch and I literally said to myself, like, what do I do? Mm. I don't know anybody here. I don't have $1 of income right now. And I have to figure something out. So I'm figuring it out. It's been almost three years at this point. But my first two years here and with the business and being in a new city and all of that, it was really rough. And last year was better, (laughs) but it's not anywhere near where I want to be. And I think that is a very common story for most folks who are starting something that it's bumpy and hard and financially stressful. And so, so when people say, oh, that's so cool. You get to be at the gym at two o'clock on a Wednesday. Well, (laughs) what allows me to be at the gym at two o'clock on a Wednesday? And I don't, I don't know your story or how much you've shared it, but um, you know, you probably had your own experience of a lot of lean times too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and I and I love your story too because you you speak to a level of, um, uh, you know, really I guess the words assertiveness. It's because it, we we all know that person who's unhappy with their circumstances, and you see them two or three mm-hmm. years later, and they're they haven't changed anything. They're still in the exact, and it's it's mm-hmm. almost like forgetting who's in the driver's seat, right? And it's it's almost like if you lose sight of that, then you will just wait for I guess life to develop the circumstances you want. But um, mm-hmm. can, can so relate with your story. I mean, you know, it's it's funny how today's culture, and it's a social media culture, we love mm-hmm. telling about that very last bit of the story of, and then I had, you know, incredible success. We don't really right. like to, and I, I, just, I just put out a post uh, earlier this week where I was talking to a guy who um, does marketing, and it was the exact same story. He said, man, it's been so hard. It's been so challenging. And he said, but you know mm-hmm. what's funny is I'm not ashamed to say that, even though... And his, his quote was, you know, everyone wants to be the next Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, you know, mm-hmm. Renee Brown, whoever, but no one wants to mm-hmm. be the person who came from humble beginnings. Like no one wants to be the person who came sure. from the garage. And so, you know, I totally relate with your story. And I, I think that sometimes we, we rob people the advice we can actually give them when we leave yeah. out that part of the story or we make ourselves seem, <laughs> you know, especially like on LinkedIn, everyone is suddenly prolific in their field on LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's in some ways we rob our impact, I think. Well, and, and one thing that I do share with people a lot, because I, I, like you said, I think it's important for that context. I speak a lot at conferences and that's really where I'm most visible and it's where I promote most on social media. And so people will see me in New York City and which was amazing. I spoke at my first national conference back in March and it was a really powerful moment. And, you know, I bop around and I'll be in Florida later and then I'm going to be in Ohio and that's really great. But uh, particularly after that New York experience, I said it was awesome and it was a huge opportunity for me. And I can forever say I'm a national conference speaker, but it cost me a lot of money to do that. It was a very (laughs) calculated decision. And I, and I just actually posted on LinkedIn. I said, there's this 
funny paradox I'm experiencing in conferences because I've spoken at maybe a, a dozen or so, maybe a bit more. And the smaller ones are always ways the registration. I often get paid. It's financially easy and wonderful. And then I found the bigger the conference, the more expensive it is for you as a presenter because they don't waive the fees and you don't get paid and you have to travel if you choose to go. And so I said, these big prestigious conferences cost me a fortune. And I don't know that that's something I'll do forever. But I share that to say it's beautiful I got to go to New York City, but but there is a flip side to that glamour. And until you are a bigger name where they are flying you out and paying you all this wonderful money, then that's what it really looks like. And I, I don't dissuade people to do it. I love doing it. And it's been a big part of my business, but to show them the reality of this. Well, and I, it, it, you know, the reality is that, and you know, to, to pull some cheesy line, I mean, anything worth doing mm-hmm. is going to take work and it's mm-hmm. going to cost you time and money. And I, mm-hmm. I can so relate in that sometimes people, and I love the way you articulated it, you know, where you're leaning in and listening, is this person really wanting to do this or are they just being polite? Because mm-hmm. I'll have people who mm-hmm. say something similar, like, oh, man, you have the dream job. Oh, I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually had one person, I said, well, why would you love to do that? And he goes, well, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you just get to wake up whenever you want and do whatever you want. <laughs> and I was like, mm-hmm. wow, I, I guess I chose. The, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing then because that's definitely not my life. <laughs> but, but actually what, right. I, what I was hearing, and I didn't, I didn't say this, but I was thinking to myself, I thought, okay, what I'm hearing is you're just immature. <laughs> you know, that you just, mm-hmm. you just want the freedom of life to just, uh, you know, do whatever you want. And I, I don't know if that's really how you find success but, but people often, it's, it's hard to really latch on to um, an acceptance of the things that aren't glamorous and, and recognizing mm-hmm. that you kind of have to trudge through the mud a little bit, you know, to get to where you're going. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- and I find it too, I'm really connected in the coaching community and I'm part of this really large Facebook group that has, I think, 10,000 folks or whatever. And I remember a post coming on just before the holidays and someone said, are you taking vacation or are you taking time off over the holidays? And almost everybody said, yeah, I'm taking two weeks. Yeah, I'm taking 10 days. I'm taking the month, whatever, you know, self-care and all of this good stuff. And it was a really interesting thread to read because I think, again, this is a really extreme example the other way, but when you listen to Gary Vee, who talks about, you know, eating shit for 10 years before anything ever happened, <laughs> right. and, you know, you hear Bill Gates say he did not take one day off his entire 20s. Mm. So I'm not saying you need to go to those extremes. Their level of success is such an outlier. But at the same time, if you're grinding it out to build a successful business and mm. you're just getting started and you're taking a month off for self-care, it's sort of like, what's the balance, right? Like, yes, right. self-care is important and we don't want people to be burnt out, but in order to build a successful business, is there a place to take a month off when you're in your first year? Right. And, and yeah. I don't, um, 
I don't say that in a judgmental way. I say right. it in a practical way of, again, yes, you're, you're wanting to do something good for humanity, but that moment, and I still have these moments, believe me, where you're like, can someone just call me and give me an opportunity? Like, wouldn't that be great? Because I know I'm good at what I do. And right. in almost all cases, as we know, it doesn't work that way. And the analogy I always use is I think of famous actors, mostly, and singers whose backstory is that they were sleeping in their car, they were down to their last $2, you know, this sort of thing before they get discovered. Mm. And then once they become wealthy and rich, they get everything for free. It's like this really backwards thing, right? When they Mm. could have used it when they were sleeping in their car. And what I'm starting to experience wrapping up my third year is now people are reaching out to me. Mm-hmm. And it would have been great to have them two years ago, but <laughs> why would they reach out to me? They didn't know me, right? Yeah. So once you start to show what you can do, once you have some credibility, once you have great referrals and testimonials and people know they can trust you and you're reputable, then it doesn't all handle itself. Certainly, you still have to grind it out, but it. Are you willing to go through that, those lean times that don't necessarily forever go away? There's this ebb and flow always, but almost nobody is doing it right from the jump, that you just have to figure out what's going to work and how do you build those relationships and build that trust. And, and the last thing I'll say is I had just posted on social media, you know, about to wrap up my third year and blah, blah, blah. And a fellow entrepreneur wrote, what are some of your lessons learned? And it was interesting to really reflect. And one of the things that came to mind quickly is I said, everything happens so much slower than I want and then and then I anticipate. Mm-hmm. And even now, I still feel that of like, okay, I, I met someone who wants to work with me. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, so... We'll start working together this month. I'll get paid and everybody's happy. When in most cases, by the time we sit down and work together and the payment comes in, it might be a year later. And that's not unusual. Yeah, um, and, and so the... the yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I said everything's a balance. And to me, the, the, the quote unquote secret to success is balancing patience and balancing being aggressive and going for it. And when do you do more of this and less of that? And and I think that's a very, very delicate balance to be aware of. Yeah. And I, and, and you know, the whole, and I don't know what the opposite of Gary V is in terms of like, you know, <laughs> I, I can't think of a select, and actually maybe, maybe that is telling in and of itself that I can't think of anyone in that mm-hmm. Gary side of it has a lot more truth than we would like to believe. Cause I, I think, Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I was even in an entrepreneurial group where someone said, you know, hey, I believe you can be successful and wake up, wake up afternoon every day. And there were so many mm. people commenting who were like, yes, retweet. And I was like, mm. I, I didn't, I was kind of like, cause I didn't want to get eaten alive, but I kind of wanted to comment. Like, <laughs> really guys? Like, is this really like, yeah. what, is this where we've gotten in terms of success? But you know, it's interesting how people everyone wants that success, but no one, not everyone's willing to pay the price for it. Right. And, and you talk mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. and I, and you know, it's so funny. I can so relate to your stories. Cause I remember 
I remember when I first started, I, it was like every, and I'm a spiritual person. And so every morning I was like mm-hmm. praying, God, please, please bring me a, a customer today. Like, please bring mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And what was funny was what flipped my thinking was I went to a conference and the speak, and it was on like lead generation or something. And the speaker mm-hmm. said, don't be the person who prays for a client. And I, it's like, you know, you're in a room <laughs> full of people and suddenly you feel like the spotlight has gone on you. And it, it just like clicked for me. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, there's actually yeah. like a, there's a level of ownership that I need to demonstrate. And if I want customers, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to get out there and actually get them. And then the second point yep. that you made, I think that was really insightful is, man, just that patience. It's tough for people mm-hmm. to understand that trust takes time. You know, I just closed yep. a, probably my, one of my, you know, most, my best clients in terms of a client I'm really proud to have. It took me two mm-hmm. years to close this client, you know? And so yep. it's, it's, and I, I've known some really awful marketers who've been like, you know, you should have closed them in one call. And uh, mm. but I, I think, I think you're, are, you're, you're so right in that, man, it just, it does take time which is why you have to grind as much as possible to, um, you know, you got to, if it takes two years to close your best customer, you actually have to have a sustainable business that's going to last two years. Right. So, and the example I always use when I moved to Baltimore and I was sitting on my couch, one of the first calls I made was to an organization that fit my avatar, my ideal client to AT. And it was, quasi-governmental, so there was a lot of red tape, I could not get in. And I I just couldn't get a meeting. I couldn't get someone to get back to me. And normally, depending on who I'm trying to connect with, I have a threshold where, okay, you're you're borderline harassing these people, right? Like, they don't want to work with you. Keep it moving. And I was so persistent with this group because I said, I know I'm going to do good work here. Like, I just know this is my client, and I have to make it happen. And after about a year and a half, and everyone I met in Baltimore, I'm like, do you know someone who works here? Do you know someone who works here? Like, I, I, I was so focused on it. And about it took me about a year and a half. I finally got a connection. We went back and forth several times. We were about to sign a contract. And then my last email to her was bounced back as a, like, they don't work here anymore. And I was like, oh, no. okay. And I kept at it. And it took me another six months. So two, a full two years later, I signed my first contract with them. And now I just signed my fourth contract with them, which I knew was going to happen. I don't always know that, but I knew with them it was going to happen. I just had to get in there. And for them, it was particularly challenging for me, but I I couldn't let go. And, And I'm the same, like when you hear advice from sales folks or marketing folks where they say, you never stop until you get a no. Maybe that that works. And for me, I, it just hasn't worked for me at this point. I get to a certain point with a person where I don't want to feel ever like I'm harassing or convincing them or trying to twist their arm to work with me. So I I step back maybe quicker than I should with most folks. That's a conversation for another day. But I think when you know, like, this is it, this is someone I have to work with. But as you said, they weren't paying me those first two years. And so I had to have a lot of other things going on while I was pursuing them. Well, and, and unfortunately we're out of time, but you know, I, I think yes. even that last bit, there's so much to unpack there. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll have to, we'll have to mm-hmm. jump on a call again at some point. You know, I, I think, um, oh, I would love that. 
I think you make such a great insight and it's no disrespect to salespeople, marketers, whoever, it's just sometimes mm-hmm. it does feel like we can be so aggressive for the short, short-term mm-hmm. sale for us instead of thinking yeah. about long-term brand and thinking, you mentioned you're on Absolutely. your fourth contract now. I mean, that's the magic mm-hmm. of a successful business is you're able to develop right. a relationship where someone continues to want to work with you. Um, so. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't want to take up more of your time because I know you said our time is up, but I do want to thank you for the work that you're doing and one, giving entrepreneurs an opportunity to get their voice heard and to get out there, but to show to your listeners a diversity of entrepreneurs and their stories and what they're doing and educating and inspiring other people. That's a really powerful mission. So thank you for that. Well, it's my joy to have you. And, and, now that you've, uh, you know, given me a nice accolade, let me return the favor for our <laughs> listeners. What, what can our yeah. listeners do right now to connect with you, to stay involved with you? What's the one thing they need to go do? Yeah, so I really love, uh, what's the one thing? There's so many things. So I have a website, of course, which is my name, katherinespinney.com. I am very active on social media and uh, my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram. It's all Coach Cat with a K, 2017. And I'm on LinkedIn too. Uh, but I have a blog and uh, my blog gets, weaves into my newsletter and to me there's a lot of really valuable information and insight there and of course it's free so I do encourage people to check out my blog at katherinespinney.com and see if there's some something that they can get out of it whether they are starting a business or not if they're leaders or want to be or they're just folks who are looking to create that life they want to live, I encourage them to come visit. Catherine, how can somebody subscribe to your newsletter? So they can, uh, if they go to my website, they can subscribe there. It's in like 40 different places. So it's in the (laughs) footer, it's on the side, it pops up when you visit. So it's really easy uh, to go on there. And I just released my new edition uh, yesterday. I do it once a month. So Right. Great. Love it. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Take care. For our listeners, absolutely check out. uh, I'll put the link in the description for her LinkedIn, also her website. I'd say definitely get on that newsletter. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, absolutely consider leaving a five-star review. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. If you're a first-time listener, we bring all sorts of awesome guests just like Catherine on the show. And Thanks for listening. I appreciate you. We'll catch you next week. See ya.